This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Science Podcast. My name is Eric Morell, and I am an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington. With me to discuss the bridge between basic science and drug development is Dr. Tom Martin, who is an emeritus professor of medicine also at the University of Washington. Dr. Martin has a very unique background that gives him a perspective that I think will be extremely informative to our audience. Dr. Martin previously served as the vice chair of the Department of Medicine at UW and was the chief of medicine at the VA Puget Sound from 2000 to 2011. Over the course of his career, he directed a research program focusing on basic translational and clinical mechanisms of acute lung inflammation and injury that was continuously funded by the NIH and VA for over 30 years and is an author on over 225 publications. He has served on multiple NIH study sections and was the chair of the lung biology study section from 1994 to 1996. He served as the president of the ATS in 2002 to 2003 and was the scientific director of the Parker B. Francis Pulmonary Fellowship Program from 2008 to 2018. In 2011, he transitioned to drug development and served as the global therapeutic area head for respiratory programs at Novartis Pharmaceuticals with global responsibility for the scientific development of new respiratory products. In 2017, he returned to UW as an emeritus professor of medicine. Earlier this year, he was awarded major funding for a NIAID-sponsored randomized controlled trial to study a new treatment for COVID-19. In summary, Dr. Martin has firsthand experience in translational research as well as major drug development. And because of this, I think can offer us insights into how we can translate our scientific discoveries into therapies for patients. All right, Dr. Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Uh, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you today and to lend some perspective to a very uh, important issue that a lot of people face as they go through uh, careers in medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think we'll go ahead and jump right in. Um, Many of us in the audience um, have really very little understanding, uh, unfortunately, of how biologic targets we might discover at the bench are translated into therapies that can help our patients at the bedside. Could you give us just a brief but broad overview of the life cycle of drug development, starting from discovery of a biologic target all the way to the making of a drug? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. And I learned a lot about this whole process uh, firsthand uh, when I was working with uh, very great colleagues at Novartis. I was in the clinical development group at Novartis, and we'll come back to that. So when you think about drug discovery and eventually getting new medications to people, you can think of really four broad buckets. The first is the discovery bucket, where new ideas are explored in laboratory settings, either in academic laboratories or in pharma-supported laboratories, um, small biotech companies or large international pharma companies. Um, Most of this in the discovery phase is actually paid for by uh, the NIH in the US um, in terms of academic funding that um, many of you 
listening to this podcast are aware of. Um, you put in your idea for your K award and translate that into your R award. And then once you have an R01 award, uh, you try to keep that R01 award funded with continuous discovery of new ideas. So the first bucket is the discovery phase. Um, the second bu bucket uh, you can think of as preclinical development. So this is a phase in which um, drugs that, um, that attack known targets are explored to prove their mechanism of action in target assays and then are moved into uh, preclinical development assays in which a whole variety of toxicology studies are done. So there's mechanistic studies and toxicologic studies in this phase of preclinical development. This is the interface between an academic lab and a pharma lab, if you will, because the academic labs don't have the funding that it takes to do this kind of preclinical development. Uh, and it's beyond the phase where scientific questions are really being asked. They're very practical questions about is this new compound um, really attacking the target in the way that an investigator has published? And then if so, is this new compound um, a compound that has uh, systemic toxicities if we use it in animals? And um, in this phase, there's usually a number of different animals that are used to explore mechanisms of action and, and toxicity, for example, cardiac toxicity, liver toxicity, um, uh, genetic toxicity, reproductive toxicity, those types of things. The preclinical development phase uh, often occupies three to six years. The next big bucket, the third big bucket, has in it the clinical development phases. And these phases you've heard about, phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, this is the, the bucket in which drugs are put into humans in phase one and tested for tolerability in single and multiple dose, uh, um, single and multiple escalating dose studies uh, and, and safety issues are recorded. Um, this phase is regulated by the FDA in that the companies have to get approval to get into this phase. And then the next phase is phase two, in which um, proof of mechanism is supported in humans and the initial efficacy studies are done in humans. So you have mechanism and efficacy uh, in phase two and the beginning of safety evaluation. Phase three is the large expensive phase in which efficacy has to be proven usually in duplicate clinical trials, and safety has to be proven in a database that often approaches 1,000 patients. The last bucket is the phase four development, which is also called post-marketing. This is where drugs are put into the market. They're used widely by humans, but um, pharmaceutical companies and developers are required to monitor safety events that happen once the drug is turned loose on the entire population. 
the FDA will say that they can get a good idea about efficacy from two randomized trials and a portfolio of phase two studies, which might involve as few as a thousand patients, but sometimes five or 6,000 patients. But they can't get a really good handle on safety uh, until the day the drug is turned loose in the whole population. So phase four is that post-marketing phase. And also in phase four, comparative, effect, uh, comparative effectiveness studies are sometimes done um, to compare the effectiveness of a new drug with effectiveness of existing drugs that might be uh, cheaper. So some regulatory agencies require comparative effectiveness studies um, to continue marketing drugs. So those are the four big buckets, the discovery phase, the preclinical phase, the clinical development phase, and the post-marketing phase. That's a, a great overview, Dr. Martin. Thank you. Um, a couple follow-up questions to that. Do you have a sense um, of where along that pipeline do most uh, um, targets or potential uh, discoveries kind of stop? Is it, is it the safety? I mean, I, I suspect most things don't get to the phase, uh, you know, to clinical development and certainly to post-marketing, but what is it that usually ends up making something not go any further in terms of drug development? Well, it's interesting because the answer to that question is that the most common failure uh, is around safety, unexpected safety events. Um, that happens in preclinical development, a drug that might be terrific for um, inhibiting epithelial mesenchymal trans transition in the lungs, might stop spermatogenesis or impair it. Um, and if that's the case, that drug will go nowhere. And that, that drug, when that data appears in an afternoon, the development program can be stopped you know, by a pharma company because why spend more money on it? Um, drugs also fail for, for efficacy, but by the time drugs get to about phase three, the large randomized clinical trials, most companies want there to be about a, a 50-75% likelihood that the drugs are going to succeed. And that likelihood is judged uh, based on the early signals from the phase two studies. So the most common cause for failure is safety. That's interesting. And an, another question I have, you know, many of us, uh, you kind of were talking about the discovery phase and the preclinical development phase. Um, let's say, you know, many of us in the audience work in a lab or have our labs and we're studying our various pathways and, and we publish our findings and we think we have a promising candidates just from a practical standpoint, other than publishing, um, do investigators and academia just reach out to pharmaceutical companies? What's the process of initiating the interface if, 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 if one thinks that they have a promising target that they wanna carry forward? Yeah, um, this happens all the time. The big farmers are continuously approached by investigators who have good ideas and they published multiple papers on a given um, target. And in that context of exploring a target, they may have found uh, chemicals or biologicals that uh, inhibit that target. 
And the next step is to say, where can I get funding? And of course, you've got academic funding, but you also have um, pharmaceutical funding. Sometimes startup biotech uh, companies will have funding mechanisms where they can seed um, laboratories to do work that's relevant for them. So um, as soon as a, an investigative group has got several shots on a given target system and can say in several different assays, a biologic effect is happening, um, most people begin to explore interactions um, with industry, basically. So, uh, no, thank you. That, that kind of leads into my second question about, um, you know, what characteristics of biologic targets and pathways are attractive to drug companies and what will they and what won't they pursue to the next level? And it sounds like one of the fundamental things, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're saying is that you need to sort of prove it in multiple different modalities, whether it be in different, I guess, animal models or in vitro models, or is, is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in my own lab experience, we would start, uh, you know, with targets we were interested in with cell lines um, and or even assays that were more reductionistic than that, but certainly cell lines. And then uh, if you have positive results, the first thing most labs are going to try to do when they ask for grant funding is uh, make the transition to small animals. And it's usually mice because of the genetic opportunities um, that you have for exploring pathways in mice. Um, the issue is, um, I mean, everybody knows that the jump from mice to humans is, is a huge one. And so uh, the next step after promising mouse experiments, different mouse models um, is larger animals, uh, whether it's rodents first, and I mentioned mice, um, but you know, rabbits, bigger animals, uh, you'll find a lot of um, labs pushing um, ideas into pig studies. Uh, it's very difficult for labs to fund primate studies, but um, that has been done um, with NIH funding uh, for appropriate targets. For example, the TNF, anti-TNF development program used primates and in an academic setting. So, um, the more information that you have uh, in either small animals or those medium-sized animals, um, the more attractive uh, a product will be to someone who really wants to get it into humans. Uh, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, are there any non-scientific factors? So let's say let's say we've done what you just said, and let's say um, we have a target, a pathway that really, really excited about, and we've looked at it in various different models, and it, you know, seems robust. Um, is there a, are there things such as intellectual property and patents that we should or shouldn't think about? Uh, is there any way that we can leverage that to help us push our science forward? Sh should we leave that to our universities, or, or do you have any comments on sort of those other non-scientific factors early in, early in the discovery and in the preclinical phase? Yeah, when, when you start thinking about taking a product along a development pathway, the first thing that, that a person really needs to do is go to the um, intellectual property group at the university um, that they're working with and treat that group as 
supportive and and friends essentially. Um, sometimes universities can put up big hurdles, but they are trying to protect intellectual property. And if if you develop a a supportive relationship with that group, you're going to be better off in the long run when you do start talking to um, specific um, companies or entities that can put put money into a program. So that's the first place to go. Second place to go is just practical, and that is to talk to people um, who have either developed drugs um, or talk to colleagues um, who are in industry, if you're at the point where your network is broad enough, but certainly at your own university, there are virtually always find colleagues who have uh, explored early drug development opportunities and just ask them um, what, what they've found. And then um, the third part is to look at the um, uh, industry partners who are in your particular area, disease area or organ area. That's great. I think that's will be very helpful um, to our audience. Um, I think uh, as we uh, wind down the podcast, one of the things we really like to do is, is a lot of junior investigators listen to these podcasts. And as you said earlier, sometimes, unfortunately, it feels like there's this somewhat of a wall between academia and industry. And so one of the things I think that many people in our audience would like to hear is um, really about careers in industry. It's something that many of us don't hear about. Um, and, and you've had an insight from both sides of that quote unquote wall. Um, so I'm curious to hear you comment on what are the various roles that you know, both physicians, MDs or PhD scientists can play in industry? Well, um, first of all, let's define the wall. Why do we think there's a wall between academics and industry? Um, it's a wall that's um, put up by um, intellectual property and, and the money that can come from, from intellectual property that is valuable. Um, and there are lawyers on both sides of the wall and it can be very frustrating sometimes trying to reach from one side of the wall over to the other because you've got to make sure the legal team on your side uh, can interact with the legal time team on the, the other side. And it works both ways. Sometimes um, industry scientists and physicians want to reach over to academic people and the university um, will, will put up barriers um, for those individuals who are on the faculty um, to, to interact. It, it, it's difficult, it's not an impossible problem to solve, but it can be very frustrating because uh, academics and the scientists in industry are born to talk to each other, basically. We wanna share ideas, we wanna develop things, and we wanna see things succeed. And ultimately, the greatest drill in the world is to develop something that helps a patient with some kind of disease, either survive or feel better or function better. So, what, what is the world like on the industry side? Well, it can be very exciting. I mean, the, the big pharma companies are the biggest clinical laboratories you can ever imagine. And it really was remarkable to go from an academic side to uh, a global um, drug company that was doing clinical trials all over the world. Um, similarly, it's very exciting to be in the preclinical development space in 
industry because the resources that industry can bring to bear on initial experimentation related to drug development and discovery are, are terrific, actually. So for PhD scientists, um, the, the roles can be in a preclinical development laboratory where actually using your PhD training to do science related to a given pathway and try to move um, promising drug, drugs that engage targets in that pathway forward. Um, PhD scientists also in industry um, leave the laboratory and move into various development phases um, and can be very helpful in the, the clinical development teams. For the MD scientists, the MD scientists usually um, are going into the clinical development um, phase, so phase one, phase two, phase three, and they join teams. And the teams are hierarchical, but the teams are dedicated to developing a given program, so for a given compound, in a given disease like asthma. It'd be an asthma team, a COPD team, and the teams are usually oriented around specific new products. So you might have two or three different asthma teams in a very large company. Um, I was, uh, was over the um, clinical teams in the respiratory area when I was at Novartis, and I got a, a really a good uh, view of, of what the physicians do. And the physicians are basically designing um, small and large clinical trials. And it's really exciting in many ways. So there are many positives um, about being in that environment. And one of them is that you rapidly meet people from all over the world because it's important for pharma to do drug development all over the world in various populations. Um, now, there are downsides to being in pharma. I was in academics for a long time, and I just really enjoyed the academic side, the discovery side. And when I got, I got into pharma, I enjoyed the, the pharma side because it was so practical doing drug development cl clinical trials. The downside of pharma is they're very, very goal-directed. And if um, a program doesn't work in, let's say, phase two or phase three, the uh, physicians on that program stop work on the program, the program is stopped, and they um, either are uh, dispersed into other teams, sometimes in other disease areas, uh, or they may be uh, trying to find positions in other companies. So the downside is that um, it is very focused and you lose in pharma the ability to sit down and say, you know, I just read this great article about um, uh, new drug development and cystic fibrosis. You know, this is really key. I wonder what these new drugs are doing to macrophages in the airway and whether the macrophages are, are uh, in any way either inhibited or or stimulated um, to deal with infections in the airway. I mean, that type of kind of um, exciting primary drug discovery is not something that um, a physician is going to be able to do in pharma unless you happen to be asking that question uh, aligned with a product that that company has. Then it's very exciting. 
but if it's something new and outside the um, bandwidth of the company, uh, you won't get very far. So that's one of the downsides. That's a wonderful overview. So it really sounds like um, there's a role all the way from the most basic mechanistic to epidemiologists and everything in between at, at pharma, similar to, to sort of in academia in various different roles. Yeah. And to give a perspective, a positive perspective, um, in a university environment, you know, if you need biostatisticians or you need somebody to tell you about whether your compound uh, has the potential to crystallize and study the crystal structure, you can look around and find people, but everybody's busy and um, it's, it's often hard to get the right expertise focused on your relatively small laboratory. <laughs> in pharma, in particularly big pharma, when we sat down with a, a clinical trial group and needed a biostatistician, three bi PhD biostatisticians would appear. Or if you needed an epidemiologist, uh, and you know, you schedule a meeting with, with two PhD epidemiologists. I mean, the resources for uh, intellectual activity are, are just tremendous, actually. So that was another upside of being on the pharma side. But I did miss the, the, the um, pre-discovery side of what I had been doing in the academic world for a long time. And I missed the training side um, that I had in the, um, the academic world. And uh, eventually, you know, I did start to miss the patient care. So those are all things that have to be weighed in the balance when you think about a career. Well, thank you. That was a great overview, Dr. Martin. We really appreciate your time. And hopefully, um, you know, this podcast can uh, uh, perhaps catalyze uh, better collaborations between academia and industry, um, which would be beneficial, obviously, to our patients. Um, once again, thank you very much for your time. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners joining us today. This episode of the Lung Science Podcast was brought to you by the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. If you would like to listen to more episodes of the podcast series, please visit atsjournals.org or subscribe to the Lung Science Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks again for listening. Please stay safe and have a great day.